We return to our dialogue and interview with Scott Ritter as we explore the real truth around the issues of casualties and civilian well-being in the Ukraine-Russia crisis. Let me ask you this just while we're on the subject. So just to clarify, when we think about the number of civilians that may have died in Ukraine, Ukrainian civilians, when you're talking about these ratios, you're talking mainly about military ratios, is that correct? And so what would you guesstimate the civilian casualties? So we've talked about this before, but it seems like the Russians from the very go, they've really slowed down their offensives in many ways as a result originally of trying to preserve the civilian population and civilian infrastructure in Ukraine that we would not normally care about in some of our endeavors in Iraq and other places. What is your take on that, just the civilian side? of it? It's very clear. First of all, again, we come back to the first thing I talked about. Historically, one-to-one ratio for every combatant is a dead civilian. Okay, there's 250,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed or wounded. Of that number, it's around 80,000 dead. 80,000 dead Ukrainian soldiers, which means historically there should be 80,000 dead Ukrainian civilians. There's not, not even close. I think the number right now is between eight and 10,000. Now that's a lot, but when you take a look at the intensity of combat that has produced 80,000 dead Ukrainian soldiers, 250,000 casualties overall, and you're saying there's eight to 10,000 Ukrainian civilians killed, that tells you that the Russians are being very, very specific in their targeting, that there isn't this indiscriminate slaughter of Ukrainian civilians. It's very, very specific, careful targeting. And we now know, thanks to both the Washington Post and Amnesty International, that the Ukrainian government has been using its own civilians as human shields so that when Ukrainian civilians die because of combat, there is a far greater probability that they're dying because their own army is using them as human shields than because the Russians have been indiscriminately targeting civilian areas. The Russians do not indiscriminately target civilian areas. Is it possible that there is collateral damage? Hell yeah. Are there, have the Russians killed civilians? You know it, but they aren't trying to, and they're doing everything possible to minimize the loss. The vast majority of the civilian deaths in Ukraine are solely attributable to the fact that the Ukrainian army uses them as human shields. We know this is the case with the far right wing groups, the nationalists, the Nazis, who go in and round up civilians and put them in apartment buildings that they've put in their anti-tank ambushes, their heavy machine guns, et cetera, using them as human shields, daring the Russians to blow up the building. You know what the Russians don't do? They don't blow up the building. The Russians, uh, if you go through the Battle of Mariupol, there's endless accounts of how the Russian soldiers sacrificed their lives to gain access to a building so that they could evacuate the hundreds of civilians in the basement, try and gain access to the civilians in the upper floors, and then work manually to clear the floors in some of the bloodiest close-in fighting, when the easiest solution would have been to drop the building with a thermal barrack bomb. But to drop the building with a thermal barrack bomb would have resulted in hundreds of dead Ukrainian civilians. You know what the United States would have done? We would have dropped the building with a thermal barrack bomb because the law of war allows us to do this. When the enemy decides to turn a civilian residence into a strong point, it becomes a legitimate target. And the civilians located there become collateral damage. 
But the crime isn't the person dropping the building. The crime is the person keeping the civilians there. The Ukrainian army is a war criminal organization. And that has been proven by Amnesty International. That has been proven by Washington Post in reporting that over and over and over again says it appears the Ukrainians are putting their troops and their equipment in civilian residential areas in violation of international humanitarian law. Thank you for that clarification. That was very articulately put together. I want to just remind our listeners, we're speaking with the esteemed writer, lecturer, former United Nations weapons inspector and former Marine Scott Ritter. Scott, let me ask you this. In your June presentation that I alluded to earlier in our discussion here, you indicated that the Ukrainian army is is one of the best equipped militaries. Now, this is a non-NATO country that's been infiltrated, flushed with all sorts of NATO equipment and military support. But as a non-NATO nation, its army, you indicated, outweighs the expertise and competitive military competence than any other European NATO nation, possibly with the exception of the Turks. And I guess, despite all that, Russia is completely rolling them. And it's been a slower process than expected, I guess, based on to keep the casualty levels down, as you've mentioned on on the Russian side as well. But the best army NATO has to offer, besides the United States and maybe the Turks, is this Ukrainian army and it's getting rolled. What can you tell us about the potential expansion of this conflict if the United States and the West keeps on making it more and more harmful to the Russians by introducing new equipment? One of the pieces of equipment you said that might be introduced was this harpoon anti-shipping missile. Can you tell us a little bit about issues connected to the general? Increasing the sophistication of the weaponry being made available to the Ukrainian forces by the United States and NATO? Well, I mean, there, there's no doubt that the quality of the material that uh, is in possession of the Ukrainian army has been enhanced by the tens of billions of dollars worth of uh, vehicles, uh, munitions, etc., you know, Western-made that have been transferred to Ukraine. So, you know, they have a qualitative improvement. They've received weapons like the Harpoon anti-shipping missile, which in theory gives them the ability to sink Russian ships deep into the Black Sea. So that reduces the safety area where Russia can operate with impunity. They've received the HIMARS, the High Mobility Artillery Rocket System that has great accuracy, allows rockets to be fired up to ranges of 80 uh, kilometers with three foot accuracy. You know, and when you combine that with uh, Western intelligence that pinpoints the location of Russian command posts in real time, the HIMARS operated by Ukrainians has been relatively effective. But I, I just want to put things in perspective for Americans. They say, oh, the HIMARS, that's a game changer. Well, only about 20 have been provided, and we don't know, but maybe 50% of those have been destroyed already by the Russians. So let's say they got 10. We're talking about a front line that would stretch up and down the East Coast from Boston to Washington, D.C. And you think 10 HIMARS is a game changer? That's 10 vehicles. Um, no, there's just not enough of them, and they're getting destroyed as we speak. But it's, 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 it's quality. What is the impact of this? You know, it's increased the price that Russia is paying for its uh, for its victory, but it's a price that Russia is able to absorb. Let me interrupt you just real quick. I'm sorry, but along those lines, every time we introduce something like the HIMARS, it seems 
like Russia is saying, okay, now we need to move the perimeter back X amount of kilometers to accommodate the safety of the Russian troops and the Donbass civilians. So it seems like more and more of Ukraine is being lost to this, what originally appeared to be more of a very concentrated East Ukrainian intervention with original intent of the Russian special operation and its stated goal of securing the safety of the Donbass region. Is that a true statement that Russia is moving that perimeter back? In other words, they're taking more and more land or demilitarizing it in response for something like HIMARS? Well, I mean, the Russians and Lugansk and Donetsk um, republics have said that uh, because of not only receiving these weapons, but the way they're being used, the Ukrainians are firing them indiscriminately at the civilian population centers, that at a minimum, to protect the civilians of Russia and the Lugansk and Donetsk regions, that the war doesn't end when Donbass, when Lugansk and Donetsk is liberated. The war now can't end until at a minimum they push the Ukrainians back in a sufficient range so that their weapons can never again threaten the civilians. But it's worse than that for Ukraine because Russia has pretty much made the decision that Ukraine is going to forfeit all of its ethnic Russian territories. That means that the oblast of Kharkov, the oblast of Dnipropetrovsk, uh, Zaporizhia, Kherson, Odessa. This is all going to be part of what's called Novoya Russia. Ukraine is going to be carved up. And that's thanks all to NATO and Zelensky. Uh, this wasn't Russia's original objective, but the Russians have made it clear now that Ukraine can never again be trusted to govern over an ethnic Russian population. And so all of the ethnic Russian populated regions of Ukraine, where there's a majority or significant population, will now fall under the control of Russia. And the other thing is we talk about, you know, pushing them back. Let's just make it clear. This war does not end with a ceasefire and a demilitarized zone. This war will end with the unconditional surrender of Ukraine and the total demilitarization of its military. All of the equipment that we're sending to Ukraine today will either end up being destroyed or captured by the Russians. That's just a statement of fact. Uh, Russia has said as much that demilitarization means the total elimination of all of the NATO equipment and infrastructure provided to uh, the Ukrainian military. So, you know, every time we send in a hundred million dollars worth, a billion dollars worth, we've lost that forever. I mean, you know, yeah, there might be a chance during their retreat that the Ukrainian army might bring us some of that material back in, but by and large, it's going to either be destroyed by Russia or captured by Russia captured by Russia in terms of ongoing military operations or as part of a final surrender deal. It will be complete surrender. There's been recent reports, in fact, some of them have been retracted after they came out, that the military equipment you're speaking of, the billions and billions of dollars in little batches of hundreds of millions, I might add, some people were reporting as little as 30% were actually reaching the Ukrainian armed forces. And the rest, I guess, was getting somehow co-opted by other. In other words, there's no oversight, military oversight of exactly when we send something into Ukraine, where it goes or, or when it is destroyed or when it never reaches where it's supposed to be reached. Do you have any insights into any of that? The 70% figure that you're citing, I believe, comes from a CBS documentary that was uh, pulled. That's right. Um, because politically, neither the United States nor Ukraine can adequately explain away that fact. And so they're, they're saying that's old data. They need to update the data. Things have improved, et cetera. I don't know how things could improve when the $40 billion defense appropriations bill that was passed on May 21st for funds for Ukraine 
Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky stood up and, and tried to delay it by saying, hey, we need an inspector general. You know, we're throwing all this money after Ukraine. We need an inspector general to figure out how it's being spent. Is it being spent properly? Is it disappearing to corruption, et cetera? Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, together with Mitch McConnell, the Minority Leader, and every other senator there turned us down and said, no, we're just going to give Ukraine this money. Ukraine is the single most corrupt place in Europe. There's no place in Europe more corrupt than Ukraine. And so we're throwing tens of billions of dollars into this seething slime pool of corruption without any way of determining how it's being spent, what it's being spent on. You know, is it effective? It's not so much that I'm worried about the the big the big ticket items, the M triple seven howitzer, the high Mars. It's very difficult to sell a howitzer on the black market. Uh, what's easy to sell on the black market, and what currently is being sold on the black market, is the Javelin anti tank missile, or anti air missile, or British in law missiles. Uh, there's a, a drone called the Switchblade, which is a Switchblade drone. You fire in the air, and then it hovers over a target and, and can be directed to a target. Uh, on its own. That's being sold. Imagine the terrorists getting a switchblade drone, launching it to monitor a presidential convoy when an American president is visiting, and then using it to disable a, a Secret Service vehicle, while another terrorist team with a Javelin missile picks out the presidential vehicle and takes it out with a Javelin. This isn't you know, a Tom Clancy novel. This is what's going to happen, because we gave Ukraine all of these weapons, the most corrupt country in Europe, and these weapons are starting to appear on the black market uh, being sold to criminal elements, political terrorists, Islamic terrorists, Al-Qaeda. Hey, there we go, America. Another great, wonderful American moral victory. Give the Ukrainian weapons so they can sell them to Al-Qaeda so can Al-Qaeda can attack America, because that's what's going on right now. So besides the issue of prolonging the war by giving all these military equipment to the Ukraine, and besides the issue of not even knowing where most of this equipment ends up, it seems like there's also the concern or the issue of an endless number of Ukrainian people dying. So it seems like if you really want to support the Ukrainian people, we would really want to end this conflict, it seems like. But also behind the scenes, this is kind of an elementary question, but somebody benefits from military equipment movement. I guess it's the manufacturers of that equipment. Is that a fair statement as well? Well, let's put it this way. When we buy military equipment, some of it is issued straight to the military to meet a table of organization and equipment strengths. That is, if we're buying artillery pieces, we know that a battery is six artillery tubes, a battalion is 18, you know, and a, uh, a regiment will be, you know, three battalions. So uh, 1624, 54 tubes. Um, so we buy 54 tubes. Then we might buy a certain number of tubes to be at the depot level to be uh, used for spare parts, et cetera. So we, you know, that's how we buy it. And then we might buy some for the reserves that in a strategic reserve, we might buy some for pre-positioned stocks. For instance, units will have tubes that they train on here in America, but we've deployed uh, the same amount of tubes over into Poland so that they can fly to Europe in an emergency, marry up with that equipment and move on. So there's X number of artillery pieces that are purchased together with spare parts, et cetera. Ammunition is likewise purchased, uh, training stocks, and then strategic reserve stocks. And it's all done through a procurement system. When we give Ukraine weapons, we're taking the weapons from an American military system that has acquired these weapons with a, a strict plan in place. So when we remove it, there's a hole that needs to be filled. And so right off the bat, we're giving the Ukrainians capabilities, and then we have to 
go in and buy new equipment to replace these capabilities. Same thing with ammunition. We give you Ukrainians ammunition. We need to replace it. So on that way, it's sort of a windfall for defense industry because you're going to see the defense budget increased, not only to cover the cost of the weapons that we're sending to Ukraine, but the replacement costs as well. The other thing that's occurring is thanks to the budget that was passed by Congress, Ukraine is now capable of buying weapons direct from the United States. That is, the weapons don't necessarily come from existing stores, but rather U.S. defense industry is going to be geared up to produce weapons that go straight to Ukraine. But you have to understand that when they do that, that means they're not producing weapons for the American military. The end result of all of this is that we're gutting our military capability. We're giving away the very things we need to win a war. We're giving them to Ukraine in a losing effort. It's not as if this is going to help Ukraine win. Ukraine is going to lose no matter what. We're just gutting ourselves in the process. By dragging this war out, all we're doing is making ourselves weaker. Uh, look at the British right now. They've given away so much to the Ukrainians that they've, they've pretty much acknowledged that if they had to go to war in Europe today against Russia, they would run out of ammunition in two weeks. I'm here to tell you that the same thing holds true for the American military and that the rest of Europe's in a worse condition. Ask the Canadians what their combat capability today is. It's nil. They've given everything away. They have no reserves left. They have no stockpiles left. If they went to war today, an enemy like the Russians, they would get ground up and spit out. So would the Germans. So would the Poles. So would everybody. NATO has gutted itself, turning all this equipment over to Ukraine, and it's all being destroyed by Russia. Think about that. Not only has Russia destroyed nearly the totality of the tremendous arsenal Ukraine possessed before the conflict, but they've destroyed nearly everything that NATO has given Ukraine since the conflict, and Russia's still winning. Mm -hmm. And just to close up, because we only have a couple more minutes with you here, what percentage of whatever military equipment that we send over there, whether it's in the form of ammunition or the hardware that uses that ammunition, even ever makes it? to a place where it can be utilized. It seems like a lot of these depots are getting destroyed. And then lastly, my heart goes out to the Ukrainians, which appear to be just fodder, appear to be just recklessly put out there in order to somehow diffuse the economic and military quantity that Russia is, but it's not really doing even that. How do you see this unfolding in the next few weeks or months? Uh, that's a huge question, and I know it's a lot of speculation, but just to close the show, can you answer those two issues? Well, sure. On, on the equipment getting to the Ukrainian military, look, the CBS documentary, I believe, was spot on. 30% of the equipment we send in makes it to the front lines. You know, what happens at 70%? The majority of it's destroyed en route. And this is despite the fact that the United States is using the CIA using uh, Joint Special Operations Command and other sensitive military units to work with the Ukrainians to create what I call rat lines, that is covert lines of communication that allow this material to effectively be smuggled into Ukraine in an effort uh, to avoid detection by the Russian military and ultimate destruction. And even with all this assistance, only 30% is making it to the front lines. And once it gets to the front lines, it has a life expectancy of nothing. It's being destroyed. The Ukrainians are losing the equipment faster than we can replace it. And then this feeds into your, your next question, what's going to happen? Uh, we're looking at the total defeat of the Ukrainian military. As we speak, Russia's in the process of puncturing the final Ukrainian defensive line in the Donbass. 
once they seize Bakhmut and uh, another city nearby, they will have punctured the defensive line. And now it's just a matter of rolling it up. And when they do that, Ukraine's got nothing left. They're going to fall back into empty space and they'll become fair game for old school Russian operational military group surround and drown kind of tactics. Uh, you know, we've reached a culminating point. I think we're going to see the rapid collapse of the Ukrainian military in the weeks and months to come. Donbass will probably be liberated sometime. All of Donbass will be liberated sometime, either by the end of uh, August or sometime in September. Then the Russians will turn to capturing Kharkov, Dnepropetrovsk, uh, Mykolaiv, Odessa. Yeah, it's inevitable. There's nothing that Ukraine can do to stop it. I think that the scope and scale of the Ukrainian defeat will probably cause the Ukrainian military sometime in the near future to remove Zelensky from power, either by force killing him or by putting him into exile. But the Ukraine military can't allow its forces to be sacrificed in this manner. They're, it's a losing cause. There's uh, nothing worth dying for at this point in time. And I, I think the Russian military is tired of the interference by the office of the presidency on military operations that end up sacrificing tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers, billions of dollars of equipment, not to shape the battlefield in a manner that's advantageous to the Ukraine from a military perspective, but rather to create the perception of capability that is used to continue to justify the provision of Western aid, financial aid and military aid. But it's all a facade. It's all a lie. And I think the Ukrainian military is going to get tired of dying for a lie. And I think they will take matters into their own hands. And take out Zelensky. I, I see that myself. Hey, well, listen, we are out of time. I want to thank you. We've been visiting with the honorable military expert. And really, I consider you an American informational hero. It's just very clear messaging and very well documented presentations you've been doing since this and before this Russian military action, special operation action occurred. I just want to remind listeners that we've had the great honor of visiting with Scott Ritter former weapons inspector, current writer, and U.S. military and, and world military analyst. Thank you for the great insights that you've shared on the show and, and other places. So thank you, Scott, so much. Last thing, if people want to follow your writings or your lectures, is there any advice you have for people to access that? Well, I post everything on, on my Telegram page. So if you go and hit the search function, type in Scott Ritter, you'll, you'll get my... Uh, my page. I guess there's a couple of fakes out there. Uh, my page is just the one that I post on. I don't put any commentary. Or I just post things on that. And I also have a, a weekly uh, a web program uh, together with a gentleman named uh, Jeff Norman called Scott Ritter Extra. Uh, in fact, is tonight at, uh, at eight o'clock, we do our weekly hour-long broadcast called Ask the Inspector. <laughs> it's just basically, it's an opportunity for people to ask questions about current events, current affairs, and uh, we try to answer the questions in a low-key but accurate manner. So if you know that's another way to uh, follow. And on the Tour of Duty website, uh, they also list um, all the videos that I do, the writings that I do, things of that nature. So th those are probably the two best ways to follow what I do. Outstanding. So ask the inspector. If you want to get Inspector Clouseau's opinion, just turn on CNN and MSNBC and everything else. And if you want the... Uh a more insightful deal. Ask the inspector. Ask the, I, I like that. I like that. Scott, hey, I really appreciate you making time for us. We'll look forward 
to following your work and getting you back on down the road a little bit. So thank you again for your work on behalf of getting at the truth of these issues. Well, thank you very much for having me. All right, brother. Thank you. Okay. See you next week. Don't be late. Also, we need you to switch on over to the internet if you're not already there to access Lost in Paradise coming up next on 91.7 KOOP. It's a show that evolves around laid back grooves, both old and new, nothing too slow or fast. Enjoy your time with Chad D. As we do every show, we take you out with Land of Naivety. See you next week. Check out the book.